0: Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden, to work the ground from what she has taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to well, before we jump into the text, a cheery text it is, isn't it? we got the fall, we have the curses, we have everything going on here today. There's just so much happening. Before we do that, I want to remind you, uh, if you were wanting to get one of those ESV, Genesis, um, uh, study books we had, journals I guess they're called. We ran out a while back. I see a couple of them out there. We ordered some more, so they are out there in the gathering place. They were $5 if you want to grab them. Uh, we'll grab one today. They're out there. Just, it has the text of the ESV and on the right side a place to keep notes if you want to use Uh, one of those. Well, we made the case last week. We made the case last week that we were going to answer the question that philosophers have been asking for centuries. What's wrong with the world and how do we fix it? And we looked at the underlying sin of the human heart last week, the disobedience of both Adam and Eve as the answer to that question. What's wrong with the world? And the patterns that played out in the human heart that even tempt us to sin The patterns that we talked about last week, the pattern to question God's word, to question his goodness, and then to question his rightful place as God. Those patterns. And if you understand those patterns of temptation, you will understand the vast majority of the problems of the world and of your own heart. To question his true word, to question his character was the second one. And then what comes to fruition, we, like Adam and Eve, we, we self-talk and question his position like they did. Yeah, who, 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 does, who does God think he is? If I obey him, I will not be happy. And he probably wants to just hold me back anyways. And so we put ourself first, stepping over or on both God and anyone else who gets in the way of our desires. And so we saw last week that the sin underneath Every sin is always putting ourselves in the place of God. That was the sin. It wasn't just the tree. Yes, it was about the tree, and that was the act that truly showed what had taken place already in their heart was that they had put themselves, they had desired to be God. Well, today in this closely connected passage, we're going to inspect the aftermath. (laughs) The aftermath of the first sinful choice. How's God going to respond? How will he respond in the garden when through sin, Adam and Eve? They do. They turn the world upside down. Will he come in and say, are you kidding? I gave you the perfect paradise and this is what you do? Unbelievable. Be gone. Good riddance. You're canceled. Go. Or does he come running down the hall like an explosive parent? Wait till I get there. Just wait till I get my hands there. Or does he just nod and wink and say, yeah, you know what? Don't worry about that tree thing. I never really meant it anyways. Now he comes with the compassionate questions we're going to see to draw them out and to guide them to confession and and a discipline that would redirect their hearts to him. That's what we're going to see. So this Sunday we're going to see that even as God is pronouncing judgment upon humanity, the seeds of grace are present. And I would even make the case, the gospel, the very gospel and the seeds of it are present. By looking to a passage, here's what we're going to see. We're going to look at the effects of the fall first, and then the hope of relief in this passage. The effects of the fall and the hope we have in relief. So if you've got an outline, take a look at it. Those are there just as a tool for those that like to take notes and fill in and kind of see where we're at in the scheme in the course of a, this message. As we look, let's begin with the effects of the fall. Sin confronted and punishment given. Sin confronted and pun- punishment given. The effects are devastating, we're going to look at. They're devastating. And you might think, you know, do we really need to, it's been kind of negative, the apple last week and now today, do we really need to focus on such negative outcomes with, look, you see there are seven sub points today. We're going to hit them quickly, so don't worry. But do we really need to do that? Well, we're still feeling the effects as what is said about Adam and Eve and the judgment pronounced on our first parents was passed on to us. We're still reaping the bad fruit of that. This is the explanation of the world. What's going on? And all your personal, your spiritual, physical disorder and suffering are all wrapped up in what took place here. In Adam, we fell. We fell in Adam. As he was our, 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 our head, our leader, all humanity represented in him and how he lived in that moment with the tree, we fell too. He was our representative. And so I believe there's value, if that's the case. There's value in diagnosing the effects, the situation of the fall, and then finding the solution this morning. That's what we're going to do. As I said, we're going to skim the surface of these seven effects that describe the condition before and after we're going to see in these effects. The before and then after. So here's our first one. Before it was innocence, we go to fear and shame. Innocence to fear and shame. Nakedness is the description of Adam and Eve. We've mentioned the word multiple times in this passage and in chapter 2. Well, first, when they were created, naked without shame, as they were made, but now it also describes the condition of all humanity as we see Adam and Eve now, naked with fear and shame, the passage said. God comes walking in the garden, as Anna read. And they hide themselves from his face, in his presence, as verse 8 says. I mean, he knows where they're at. He knows where they are, and yet he asks. We're reading right now in our men's group a a Tozer book uh, uh, where we're looking at all the different attributes of God. One of them is omnipresence and omniscience. He knows the answer to these questions, but he comes to ask them, where are you? And, And who told you you were naked? He interrogates them to draw them out, to bring them out of their shell and out of their hiding, to to, to confession, to show them their need. As we look at Adam and Eve right now, we are looking, you and I are looking at the state of all sinful humanity, everyone, every person ever born. No sinner, in other words, seeks after God. We all run and hide just like Adam and Eve did. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. What's your greatest fear? What is humanity's greatest fear? Is not at least one of them that people will see me for who I really am? Our fear of being naked, of being exposed for what we and who we really are? It's a great fear. I mean, why is it, you think about it, so, so many people, I mean, growing up as kids, sometimes as in adulthood, they have this reoccurring dream of showing up at places naked, where they're not supposed to be naked, work or school or the grocery store. Some people have those reoccurring dreams. There's a great fear of it. Deep down in the human heart, we know we're not okay. You and I know we're not okay. And so what do we do? From our first parent on, we run, and we, we hide. We hide our sin, and we, we self-justify, as we're going to see Adam do, and blame shift, and then God asks, Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Well, he confronts Adam first. You see it there. Why do you think he does that? He does it because Adam already... From before the fall, he bears the primary responsibility for the spiritual state of his family. So when the fall happens, he comes to Adam first. Adam, Adam, I gave you this responsibility. But both Adam and Eve, you see it there, and you could hear it even being read, they respond by taking a few steps back from the blame and judgment, don't they? They take a few paces back. Adam actually, in blaming the woman, he actually blames God more. Did you catch that there? He says, God, the woman you gave to me. Adam has the the gall really to blame God in this moment. And Eve, you heard, she blames the serpent. And she's actually correct. First Timothy says this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a, a transgressor. Adam was willful. He knew what he was doing. He had been given the responsibility. God had had this conversation before Eve even been created. This is your job, Adam. He willfully knew. Eve was deceived. Even uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy. But it doesn't excuse either of them. It doesn't excuse either of them. It's kind of like what they do, Adam and Eve, when you and I are wronged. Think of somebody doing a wrong to you. Hurting your feelings. Or, or, or you've, done a, actually, excuse me, you've done a wrong to somebody else. You've wronged somebody else. And, and you want to own it. You want to... Uh, apologize. But sometimes it kind of comes out like this, you know, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Sound like apology rather than, I did it. Here's what I did. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Or, or, we, or we take a, two, a few steps back, like, ah, I had a hard day. I was really tired. I hadn't had food, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, my boss is on me today, but, you know, so I'm sorry. That's why I did it. I mean, does that sound like an actual apology? That's not actually an apology. At first, that's blaming the person for their feelings. I'm sorry I made you feel that way. It's kind of even putting it on them, as Adam and Eve do with God. But even in the blame shifting, the truth comes out. Both of them say, I hate. I hate. To come to God truly is to say, I hate. I hate. To lay down your excuses, to lay down your blame shifting, to lay down your own works that kind of self-righteousness, and just say, I ate, God, I ate, and confess it. The first one we see, they go from a state of innocence to fear and shame. Here's the second one, fellowship to enmity. They go from fellowship to enmity. The second effect we see as we move into verses 14 to 19, it's sort of there's a account of what happened, and you move into this dialogue again of God. God is declaring uh, a lot. Of, most uh, co- commentators call them oracles. He's giving out these oracles, this divine speech of declarations of how life will be now going forward because of sin. That's what these oracles are. They're not commandments. So that a woman is commanded to feel pain in childbearing. Thank the Lord, right? Some have epidurals, things to, to relieve that pain. We're allowed to, to seek relief from the pain. But the condition of how life will now be is what God is saying. This is how it will be. Well, where there was once only peaceful relationships in the garden, there's now this, these relationships of enmity. It speaks of strife, of conflict, set up between the snake who's cursed and this woman, this woman Eve. This conflict is set up. As we see the passage there and the the curse on the snake, we realize he's the most cursed of all the livestock. So all creation now has fallen under this, 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 this curse. And it's barred from its initial fullness and blessing that had been set up to bring to the man and woman. And secondly in the curse, the serpent God says this. Look at verse 15 again with me. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So this serpent will crawl in the dust and eat dust, and the serpent forever would now be, as God cursed him, the serpent would be a symbol of, God, or of Satan's attack on humanity. And there's now a, a real struggle in the world of good and evil represented in the actual battle between this woman and her seed, satan i mean to understand the book of genesis to understand the book of genesis and i would say even the entire story of the line of the bible is to hear this point and to understand the struggle between the serpent the devil and the offspring of this man and woman that's the entire storyline of the bible the conflict of nations even that we see all through the Old Testament is centered on this conflict between the serpent and the seed. I mean, Satan's mind, he's probably at this moment, who's this seed? He's hearing the curse. Who is this seed? And, and what will he do to me? And He comes to this woman. I'm going to destroy this woman then. I have to destroy her or her seed or, or any biological offspring that come from her now moving forward. And in Eve's mind, maybe she's thinking, wait, what? We're not done with this serpent? We're going to still have this ongoing thing? wait a minute, uh, do you see the conflict of humanity played out here? This is the conflict of history, this enmity. They went from fellowship to enmity. Here's our third one, pleasure to pain. They go from pleasure to pain. Both of them, Adam and Eve now, will experience pain now. Where before it was this, remember, it was an endless supply An endless supply of of, of good, pleasurable choices. A menu you could never imagine they had in front of them. All pleasurable choices. Now in childbirth, Eve's going to experience a multiplication of pain, verse 16 says. And Adam, because he listened to the voice of his wife over God, will experience pain too. Same word used for both. We wouldn't dare say they're the same kind of pain, right? But Adam will experience pain as well as he would scrounge out an existence to eat. From the cursed ground, it would become a constant reminder of his sin. The pain of work. The pain in work. Childbearing and work. They existed before the fall, but now their pattern would be one of immense pain. Immense. Here's our next one. From pleasure to pain, the next one is abundance to lack. They go from abundance, everything they could want, to lacking. Where there once was fruit on every tree that was good and delicious and beautiful, and a tree of life that they could take from and live, life that would be perpetuated in its glorious state of perfect garden. Now listen to the state of things. Look at verse 17 with me, and then we'll jump down to 18. And Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. The curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and the dust you shall return. The ground now even is cursed with thorns and thistles and weed and food gathering and growing becomes difficult and hard in a way that it never was in the garden. It was just there to pick and take. We begin to see more clearly. And as they have to work with sweat and toil and dust and thistles, we see the great naked exposure of Adam and Eve and humanity. How in every sphere of life now, we live and move in has been tainted by this sin and experiences frustration. I mean, isn't that your life? Can you think of any area that's never been tainted by some sort of frustration? None. There's none. Uh, Theologians call it total depravity. It's not the idea necessarily that everyone is as totally evil as they can be because we're not. Each and every one of us, even the most evil person that's ever lived, could have done something even more evil. It doesn't mean that, but total depravity means that every sphere of life and every part of you, mind, soul, body, heart, relationships, work, childbearing, child rearing, and, and raising, is tainted by sin and frustration as it's gone from abundance to lack. Here's our next one. Harmony to conflict. Harmony to conflict. By this point, you're like, when are we going to get to the relief, right? (laughs) When are we going to get there? We will. But conflict comes, especially, uh, crucially, and acutely in their own relationship this marriage between the man and the woman. What once was this oh, bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, I love you. This harmony would now continue, but in perpetual frustration and distortion. Would now continue this way. It's the second part of God's oracle to Eve. He says this to her. You see it coming up on the screen. He says, your desire, verse 316 says, we got it coming up there on the screen. There it is. Is It coming up. There it is. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What is going on here? What's happening here? Let me tell you. In Adam and Eve's sin, do you remember the initial order he had put uh, in place? Let's see that come up. We've got the initial order of those, those circles. Now, remember, as we talk about this, this does not mean that as woman and man and God is in the center, that woman is further from God or has any less of a relationship or is any less made in God's image than man. This is just to show us the actual ordering of responsibility God had given. God is to be the center of this new couple of their life, of their marriage, of their garden. And the man had been given in Genesis 2 the responsibility to lead, to care for, to protect, to point the family towards God and keep them centered on God. And the woman was to come along as a very strong, very capable helpmate to complement and bring into Adam what he lacks, where he would do the same to her, bring to her what she lacks. Perfect complement for each other. And yet we know when the dialogue by the tree They inverted it. Here it is. God's nowhere present, really. He's there. He's not mentioned, though. Satan is now leading this dialogue. Hey, the tree, check it out. What do you think, Eve? Did God really say? And the woman is leading. Eve listened to Satan and took the lead rather than maintain the partnership in that moment. And then Adam comes along and listens to Eve rather than follow her. He follows her lead. Rather than lead her, he follows her lead. Uh, You see it in verse 17. God even says it. And to Adam, he said... Because you have, you've abdicated your role and responsibility. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, doesn't mean he doesn't listen to, and husbands shouldn't listen. He means in this moment, with this choice, with that fruit, you listen to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree. Because of that, you followed your wife, you were supposed to lead Adam. Now there would be a distortion in the relationship. She would desire to distort it, and lead rather than help, and her husband would be tempted to dominate and rule. Now this is not here, this verse, we've got to be really clear. Verse 16 there, this is not the implementing of the doctrine of a husband leads and a wife in submission follows her husband in partnership. That took place in Genesis 2. It's already there. Adam's actually failed in that, and Eve has as well. This is a distortion here. This is an effect of the fall in sin that we see there. I like how Alan P. Ross describes it. He says, To attempt to teach submission of the woman to her husband and the loving leadership of the husband to his wife, in this verse here, completely misses the point. He says those are qualities that are taught in the New Testament as part of the world of the Holy Spirit and even present in Genesis 2. This verse is part of the oracle for sin. How would this oracle then apply in successive generations? That means you and I. It may be argued that the male domination in the history of the human race is a perpetual reminder of the fall, just as the serpent's crawling on the ground. But if Eve represents every woman as Adam represents every man, then the story portrays a characteristic of human nature. The woman at her worst would be a nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst would dominate the woman. Dominate in a negative way. and nemesis, obviously, in a negative way. The desire to destroy and distort what God originally intended marriage to be is at the heart and the effects of the fall. That's what this verse is saying. To get it wrong time and time again in marriage. I mean, don't you ever wonder why, where the, where the heart of those temptations in marriage come from? To disrespect your husband and to be harsh with your wife. There it is. It's there. It's an effect of the fall. Therefore, I, I, what I think is then, we should seek as Christians to live all the more in, in lives and in marriages, in the power of Jesus Christ that restores the sting of the curse. Not just neutral or tepid or eh, satisfactory marriage. It's okay. At least we're still married, right? Not, no, no, no. Not just tepid or satisfactory, but beautiful and joy-filled and, and repentance-driven sacrificial loving marriages by the power of Jesus that mirror Christ's love for the church in his humble sacrificial leadership for the men and in his humble sacrificial submission to the Father for women we complement each other in a beautiful way to reverse the sting of this effect on the relationship here's our next one life to death life to death this is a big one. It's our sixth effect. The life to death. So this painful now, this toilsome existence, will now conclude with actual death. Actual death now comes into the world. I mean, at this point, you know, you're hearing all the effects of the fall. You might actually say, yeah, death sounds like a relief now, given what we're, we've already gone through. Well, what began as a desire to be like God in the hearts of Adam and Eve, I'll be my captain, I'll be the director of my life, I'll do it my way, I'll be the God of my life, ends in dust. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. for you Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So much so for our desire to be God's, right? So much for that desire to be divine. that was in Adam and Eve's heart. You will return to dust, he says. The nakedness, the alienation, the neediness, the enmity, the discord and pain would come to an end in death. Where's the hope of relief in that? It just sounds like bad news piled upon bad news, doesn't it? It's just piling up here. But I think it's in our final effect of the fall that we start to make a little transition to Relief. Here's the final one. Home to exile. They go from home to exile. Homeless, you might say. God takes them from the home, uh, this paradise garden at the end of the passage, in verse 23 and 40, drives them out into the world outside of the garden. And we heard it read there, on the eastern side, He places these magnificent, probably even terrifying creatures Angels with flaming swords. These are meant to be read as literal. To guard the way back. Now, how is that a relief? Come on. You just said we're transferring to the relief. Now their, their gate, their home, is guarded by angels with flaming swords? Imagine if he left them in the garden in their sinful state with the tree of life available to them to live forever. In a sinful state. Imagine that. It was God's grace in a way and a relief now that He barred the way back. And these angels would now keep the garden. Not Adam. Same word used Adam, you keep it? No, no, no. Now these angels will keep it. They were a sign for humanity, a sign for Adam and Eve as they appeared there at the garden. And do you know something that's interesting? What's on the curtain in the temple? hundreds of years later. The temple, the Holy of Holies, is the place where God's presence resides. There's this giant thick curtain in between it and where the people can go. What's on that curtain? Angels with flaming swords. They kept people out of the Holy of Holies and out of the garden. And the sign was this. The sign was this. And the hope of relief begins, even in that exile, and the keep out is there, that life is going to go on. Life is going to continue. It's going to go on in a new way. It's going to go on. But these angels here in the garden and on the curtain, I think they hint at, there may be a way back. And if there's a way back to God, it's going to now have to be at his own doing. Look what's in the way. The way is barred. So yes, it was painful, but it opened up the possibility to them. Well, the way is barred. Can it be reopened? Can it be opened again as life went on? You know, the Beatles have a great, I said it, the Beatles, yes, a great, simple song. It's a really simple one. It's off their White Album. You maybe you probably know as soon as I say the title, Oh, Blah, Di Blah, Da. You know that song, Life Goes On? You know that. One. I probably have lost all of you now for the rest of the sermon. It's going to be like in your head running, Oh, Blah, dee. yeah, you know that. Well, it's a good song. They have a great song. It tells a simple story of Desmond and Molly Jones. And it tells the story of their life. How they come together from their first meeting to dating, to marriage, to kids, to raising those kids and then actually working alongside their kids in the marketplace. And uh, McCartney and Lennon wrote it, mostly McCartney, uh, you'll, as you'll hear in a minute. But the, the lyric from the song goes on like this. You see it coming up here. In a couple of years, they've built a home sweet home with a couple of kids running in the yard of Desmond and Molly Jones. And the chorus repeats again. Oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da, life goes. Some of you can't help from even singing it right now. Life goes on. Oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da, life goes on. John Lennon hated the song. <laughs> he hated it. He called it He called it Paul's granny song. I don't know why. It's like old music or something. I don't know what Paul was saying or John was saying. Actually, he added another colorful word I can't use here, but that's how he described the song. But the profound simple truth from the garden, life goes on. Life goes on. Where God could have chosen to justly cancel the human race in that moment, life goes on. And the garden gate and the keepers are a symbol and sign of that, that life's gonna go on. I mean, we still live, we still marry, we still have children, we still raise them, we still build sweet homes together. Even as it's full of pain and full of toil, there is the hope of relief, because life goes on. Now, as we live, a hope of relief that I think's even here, I think's even here in these oracles of sin. As life goes on, yeah, in a new way, but it goes on in a way that now God himself, the keepers are there, the way is barred, God himself will have to provide the new way and protect and provide for his creatures with relief. So are you ready for that relief? I am this morning. It's a lot of effects of the fall. Take a breath. Let's get some relief. Let's see it as we close our relief. Here's our first one. We're going to look at the God of initiating that comes out of this passage. The hope of relief we see first in this passage is God is the one who initiates. We talked about it a little bit last week, but you know he did not, did he? He did not come running down the hallway like an explosive parent, that we could be so tempted or as you raised your kids or are. You know the scene, it's the 20th time you hear someone scream from the bedroom, you're like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, we had this conversation, I know they're doing it again. You go marching down the hallway in your dialogue. You just wait till I give them some of my great parental wisdom. I am dripping with wisdoms of oracles, oracles of discipline. And I'm going to go in that room and give them all of that. You fling open the door. What are you doing? That's not the picture here. No, God initiates while Adam hides. With the question we posed last week, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? just knows he knows he wants to give him the opportunity to tell him things that he already knows he doesn't have to do that to confess to him really and then trust him in his goodness again i mean if if, all this passage if the one takeaway for you is this this is the this is the theme of this passage god wants us to confess so he comes and says where are you and then he wants us to say confess it and then trust him for the relief in that confession. That's it. the whole passage boils down to that. It boils down to that. And God seeks them out. Why? Because we hide, don't we? And he's still seeking out. He's still pursuing. He's still calling sinners to himself today. That's the definition of divine, sovereign grace. God draws men and women out of the dark cave of hiding and shame and guilt and nakedness. That's what he's in the business of doing. And he offers us relief for the prospect of futility and the the toil and death that Adam and Eve passed on to us. Isn't that what you need? I mean, don't you need that? The God who comes after you, he is that God. Here's our second one, our second point of relief. He's the God of initiating. He's the God of life. He's the God of life. Instead of coming down like this angry parent or canceling the entire human race, even in the curses, he offers life. You know, Adam and Eve, as they heard these things, what, what do you think was going through their mind? You think if you were there, if that was you, what would be going through your mind? I mean, you would expect that they would be absolutely devastated and crushed by these oracles. Not respond back, disappear from the story and dialogue maybe. I mean, alienation, toil. Pain, death, suffering are your lot. But you know what they actually do? They actually agree with God. They agree with him here. And Adam overcomes in that moment and is not devastated through faith. Faith, you might say. Faith? Where's faith in this passage? I mean, it's like a New Testament thing. Why are we talking about Adam and, and faith? He hears these divine declarations of death and suffering, and you know what he does? He names his wife Eve. Right after the oracles, look at verse 20 with me. Right after hearing about all these curses coming, we go right to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Living. Oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da. Life goes on. Life goes on. And Adam shows us he believes life is going to go on even in the midst of the curse of death by calling his wife Eve, the mother of all living. The race would continue in spite of the curse. And there's a faithful hint that even though angels now guard the way in that name, there might be a way back to the tree of life even and victory over death that's been pronounced. Eve. Eve. Through Eve. It's beautiful. It's faith. He just was told death and all these curses and he goes... Your name is Eve, mother of living and life. A life where God will cover the nakedness. It's our third one, the God of covering. Right after he calls her Eve, more grace appears. Verse 21, and the Lord God, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, grace and shame aren't mentioned in that verse 21 again. They're not brought up or the fear or anything. But implied in God clothing them with animal skins is that He's taking care of those things it, with a much greater wardrobe than sewed together fig, fig leaves, I might add, right? Much greater. We see here the first sacrificial animal. An animal would die to cover their nakedness. A skins, animal skins pointing us forwards as like a type, getting us ready, pointing us forward to the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple and the animals that would be done, when done in faith, would cover sin, would cover their sin. God took life from an animal so that the shame of his creature would be relieved. And he gives them this fur coat, I guess, what it is. I mean, Adam would have never thought of this. He probably never would have thought of taking a life to cover his shame. And what we know, because look at what are his efforts. Our efforts are tracks to cover our sin. Lies, we might tell. tell. They're futile. They're patchwork. They're blame shifting. The woman you gave me, the serpent, they're power grabbing. Adam had to learn in that moment with the animal, your efforts will never cover your nakedness. And so do we. Your efforts will never cover, when I say nakedness, the sense that you have in your heart that you know you are not right. You can patchwork together a whole perfect resume of life with fig leaves and God says in the simple act of that animal, it won't cut it. Marcus Dodds uh, describes it clearly. He says, he, Adam, had to learn that sin could, could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. And there was a death. Suffering must follow wrongdoing, he said. I mean, don't you know that to be true? Suffering must follow wrongdoing. Now flip it, what we said earlier. Imagine now someone wrongs you. Not you wronging them seeking forgiveness, but now imagine someone wrongs you to truly forgive, to truly cover it. It doesn't make the act go away. It still existed. What they did in time and space is real. It doesn't necessarily make the feelings go away or the effect, the pain it caused. But for someone to forgive someone else truly, the person who is wrong has to absorb it for forgiveness to take place. Has to absorb it. Has to take it on. What do I mean by that? When you absorb the wrong, it means you, you don't go back and demand payment. You don't go back and remind them every day, I remember what you did. You remember what you did. To absorb it, you take it on. And that costs, doesn't it? And it hurts. It hurts to truly forgive because you are absorbing the wrong or the right to get even. Suffering must follow wrongdoing because somebody's got to absorb it. The animal did here. Who absorbed it for us? Who absorbed it for you? It's the God of crushing, our final relief. God of crushing. Take a look back at verse 15 with me. We intentionally cut off and didn't read the second half of it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's what many theologians, commentators, call the proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel. It's a big word you see coming up, but it really just means proto-first. Evangelium sounds like evangelized, good news, gospel. It's the first mention that we think here of something that comes to fruition as a big tree which starts as a little seed in the Old Testament. The enmity, the battle of good and evil between the serpent and the seed would bring one from Eve's line who would crush the serpent. Who would crush him. And as he did it, he'd be bruised on the heel. It would hurt. Somebody's got to absorb it. Suffering has to follow wrongdoing. It would hurt. He'd be bruised on the heel, but in that death blow, there'd be a death blow to the head of the serpent. Who is he? Just listen for a minute. Listen to the words of Genesis 3. And you see if it gives you a hint of who this one is, this serpent crusher, toil, conflict, sweat, thorns, tree, death, dust. It's Jesus. Psalm 22, he even said this. The psalm he quoted the most on the cross. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. It's Jesus. And as we come to this table, it's Christ who is the centerpiece of this table. Our meal, our fellowship, our restoration, our victory over life and death, our clothing. It's Christ, the great snake crusher, when Jesus Christ died on that tree, do you know what happened in the temple? Do you know what happened? To that curtain that had the angels on it with the flaming swords, what happened? It ripped. From top to bottom, it ripped. It's it's like saying, Yeah, the keep out was there, but no more. No more. The table points us there. I actually think it's not that it was opened up so now we can come back in. I think it was ripped open so God became rushing out of that temple to us in a way by the power of the Spirit that he never had before. He comes out. I'll rip that curtain up. The angel's flaming swords are gone. He absorbed is what we're saying. He absorbed the punishment you deserve so you could be given the ultimate wardrobe, his righteousness. Not just for a coat, might be nice, but hey, his righteousness. And now you can come back, clothed with righteousness, back to the Father, back to the better garden someday. Do You see the grand storyline playing out? He's the only way you can stand naked before God. Because we all will. He knows everything without fear and shame. Without fear and shame. It's Jesus Christ. So as we come down and prepare, as our servers come and get ready, and we, we prepare, here's what I want you to do. I, there's, there's a lot in this passage, but I just want you to take the simple theme of it was this. God, by questions, is calling people out to confess that I ate too. And in that confession, trust in his goodness to give you relief in Jesus. I mean, that's the simple theme of this really complex passage. He comes to them, calls them out to confess, and says, believe that I'm the one that's going to provide relief. Believe that I'm the one that's going to tear the curtain. Believe that Jesus is going to absorb your death in the cross. Take a couple moments and do that. Maybe it's a time of confession. Maybe it's a time of just thanking Jesus as we prepare our hearts. And if you're someone who is, uh, not, c- cannot today say, you know, I- I'm part of that family, I'm part of that, the church, I'm part of God's people, you know what Jesus tells us? Let it pass. This is a a family meal, and if you can't really call yourself part of the family yet, we want you to, but if you can't yet, it makes more sense just to let it pass by. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. And Nobody's going to be looking down the aisle. It's not to judge. It's not for us to take tally and go, who is it? No, no. Just let it go and spend that time between you and the Lord and ask him, show me my need. Bring me into that family. Take a couple moments as our worship team prepares as well.